0: Hi, this is Peter Franchot, your state comptroller in Maryland. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties.
1: Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, recording remotely, sort of after dark-ish, I suppose. We are recovering from Crossover as we record here on Thursday, the 25th. Crossover was last Monday, so a lot of action on Monday. And now as we move forward today, Michael, with Crossover finished, things are becoming more clearly into focus So we're going to run down a handful of interesting topics, quick inventory of some of the issues that we've been watching and have talked about on the podcast. We'll talk through where we are and what's left to watch. What do you think about that?
0: Sounds like a pretty good thing for late March. I'm in.
1: Let's jump right into it, Michael. Police reform, we have throughout session talked about this being one of the giant issues of the session. No surprise there. We're not alone in understanding that. Obviously, there's a lot of coverage all over the place. But I think at this point, again, crossover is done. We have two bills at this point, right? And they're pretty different. Seems Mm -hmm. like they're going to go to conference, Michael. I mean, first of all, what is conference? And talk a little bit about these two bills that have passed out of the House and the Senate.
0: This is a topic that probably could be an entire podcast, and we could have a couple of guests and go through this fine tooth. But, um, Let's keep it high level and talk a little about process. So uh, the easiest path for a bill to pass is that everybody agrees on it. So the House of Delegates votes the bill out. They just support it. The Senate supports the exact same bill, and boom, you're done. But as it turns out, it's more likely, particularly on things that are complicated or have multiple parts... That you will see amendments along the way. That the, the committee in the House says, We want to make these three or four changes, and they recommend that. It gets accepted on the floor of the House, and then they pass an amended version of the bill, goes over to the Senate, the same bill, and then the Senate gets to consider whether they want to pass that. And frequently, the Senate will say, Well, we have our own ideas. We want to change these other three things, so we'll amend your House bill and send it back to you. Well, the way a two chamber legislatures designed to work is a bill only passes if it passes in the same form out of both sides so the house and senate have to agree on the final version of a bill for it to be sent to the governor for a signature so the process like what we're going to see over the last few weeks of this session and every year at this time of year is a lot of bills where the House and Senate have each passed their own version of the bill, but it's not yet identical. And what they'll need to do is work out the differences. The The easiest mechanism to do that is you convene a committee that includes some senators and some delegates, usually from the committees that have debated and discussed the bill. You get them together to try and iron out their differences. And then they bring one final product right back to the floor of the House and the floor of the Senate for one final up or down vote. So no no more changes, no more amendments, this is it, take it or leave it. And then if both chambers agree to that final product, you have a single unified bill you can send to the governor. So that's the path we're on for, for many stakeholders who have been watching police reforms. We've got two different bills, one passed out of the Senate, now it feels like about two or two and a half weeks ago. Hmm, one right. passed out of the House a week or week and a half ago. And they are pretty different. So they're heading in the direction of, let's appoint some leaders from each of the two committees. And we'll try and work out the differences and you know find some middle ground or find areas where the House likes some of the Senate changes or vice versa. That That's the direction they're on in general.
1: Right. So, I mean, when it comes to, legislation. I mean, let's be clear, it's pretty hard to get a bill through clean, both the House and the Senate, without any changes, any amendments. And so often now, Michael, we're going to start hearing on the floor conference committees being appointed, right? Those will be announced for bills. The House will appoint a conference committee, and so will the Senate. And the best way, I guess, to describe this is a negotiation between the House and the Senate, between those appointed members of each committee. And that's where we are, like you said, with this police bill, both in the House and the Senate. They're very different. So Let's sort of walk through a high-level overview of of what the, the major differences are between the House and the Senate bill, what they did here, what their vision is of what police reform should look like in Maryland.
0: This is a topic we knew, not just in Maryland, but across the United States. We knew that there were going to be state legislatures, many of whom sit down in the early months of each year, each calendar year, to convene in a session like ours does. And we knew this was going to be sort of a lot of pressure coming into this session to, you know, we want big, bold changes. And some of that has been a little bit misplaced. I, I mean, I've been at the in the, the Zoom hearings this year in Maryland bills where, as it turns out, there are bills introduced that really don't even correctly reference Maryland law. Like, let's get rid of qualified immunity. Well, that's actually not a thing in Maryland law. Right. That's it's an issue in other states. It's not really, practically speaking, a thing here.
1: This is a point where sometimes you'll get boilerplate language from someone, yeah. right, from other states. And that's sort of just looped into a bill in Maryland. And, and like right. you just said, that doesn't apply here. But what well, we know, this is a national issue, right? So I'm sure there are a lot of those boilerplate type bills that are making their way across the country. But it's important to, to point out that sometimes it doesn't always work. So I think that is a that's right. a pretty interesting point there overall.
0: One of the areas where Maryland is, along with many other states and is in the crosshairs of a lot of folks asking for big reforms, is we have currently a statewide set of laws that are bundled together known as the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. and It's basically procedural protections for a law enforcement officer who's charged with misconduct. What has to happen before the officer can be suspended from the job or demoted in rank or given an official you know, censure or other discipline measures or things like that? There's sort of some special process that an officer is entitled to. Um, that's kind of gotten conflated with under what circumstances can we criminally charge an officer who's done something that's maybe terrible in the line of duty? And those are the high profile cases where, you know, we see, you know, residents being injured or killed at the hands of officers. we're saying, why isn't this person on charge for murder? The answer that for that is not because of the L.E.O.B.R., the, that Bill of Rights right. law. It's it, that, that's a, because the, the, the gears of, of the justice system sometimes turn slowly as you go mm-hmm. through an investigation or a grand jury or other things like that. Anyhow. Those are the kind of issues that I think a lot of people feel very strongly about. I want to make sure that the police officers in our state will be held accountable if something goes terribly wrong. And if the cop didn't follow the rules or if the cop has a pattern of being a bad guy, I want him off the force. Like that, that, that's, that's right. the gut instinct that a lot of people who have been carrying signs and, and you know, sort of marching on Annapolis and so forth. That's, that's what they're really after. We know we're going to have police, but we want them to be accountable to us. And we can't have them to be a threat to our neighbors and friends.
1: So that's. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody what, would, you know. would disagree. Right. Like that's pretty nobody would disagree with that sentiment. But it right. turns out once you start digging in here and you start looking at nuts and bolts stuff, there, it's, it's way more complicated than just that. Right. So and that's where I think yeah. a lot of the differences lie here.
0: I I think so. These these issues all have two points of view and sometimes more than that about what's the right thing to do. I mean, the fact of the matter is I remember we we had Everett Sesker, um, who, who works now with the law with the local government insurance trust and does some some police related training and like sensitivity training and so forth for law enforcement officers and leaders and yeah he he kind of walked us through some of these issues that there's there, there's different points of view here that i, I think are all valid um you want to have good training you want to have good standards and accountability for your officers uh, but once you say okay like one of the elements in in this bill particularly coming out of the house is here's going to be the new clear bright line standard for when you can use deadly force as an officer. And only if this has happened, only if you know this, only if you've exhausted these other options and that sounds pretty good on paper, but then you hear actual officers and the, you know, the leaders of their organizations talking about these decisions are frequently made in split seconds. And, you know, do you want to leave officers terrified to do their job for fear of reprisal or lawsuits or personal you know, financial responsibility or I'll have my records opened up and I'll never be able to work in law enforcement again because in one split second I pulled the gun when I hadn't clicked every single box on this on this checklist. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know the perfect way to thread that needle, but things like use of force standards, things like the discipline and charging process for officers who are in these situations. This is the kind of stuff we mean by police reforms. And I think almost everybody, myself included, expects that they'll go through a process like a conference committee, they'll haggle through and find some middle ground on a lot of these issues, and then bring it back to the floor of the House and the Senate, probably will be a tricky vote on the floor of the Senate in particular that what what'll probably come out will be a bigger ask for some members who weren't even thrilled about the bill that already passed the Senate for one time so i mean a lot of people will be looking at it there's some there's some local government issues in there they're not really exciting to discuss so we're we're modestly involved but social justice organizations those who represent the law enforcement officers and so forth, um, there's a lot of stakeholders who are are like hour to hour on this issue this session.
1: Right, definitely. So, I mean, this is certainly one of the highest profile issues this year. We knew that, and now, both the House and the Senate have passed their versions, and we're going to have to wait until a conference committee is appointed on both sides, Michael. But I think, you know, you mentioned it. The House is certainly more aggressive in terms of what they'd like to see be done. And, you know, we'll have to see what they can work out and essentially negotiate in conference committee. But I think it's pretty safe to say they'll pass something, correct? I mean, you think there will be a bill, by sign or die, that, that pops out and everybody can sort of agree on, at least that the, the bodies at large can agree on.
0: I think that's probably the direction we're headed. This is this is going to look a little bit, honestly, like a budget committee conference, uh, the, like the budget conference committee in an ordinary year, where you have fiscal leaders from the House and Senate who have each gone through a whole budget plan. And then when they're working out differences frequently, there's you know, some staff in the room that have this big organizing document. And here's the 62 different areas where you disagreed and here's what the house action was here's what the senate action was what do y'all want to do on this topic this could set up that way and this could be a lengthy document that that feels like a like a budget process uh, even though it's not about dollars and it's not about you know funding projects and so forth it'll be about the the various tenets of a use of force law or who sits on a charging committee for for cops and, and things like that so um so i think that's that's the framework we've got ahead for for those of us who have been along for this ride there's there's a little more to to go um, but i mean since, since since i mentioned the budget framework um let me try and make an awkward segue into that because that's one of the big things that you're invested in mm-hmm. watching the whole fiscal package come together most of those pieces are falling into place, too. Is that kind of where we are now at this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, typically, you're right. I mean, we'd be talking a lot about conference committees and the budget, and typically that's more of a drawn-out process. And, Michael, remember, back in July, just back in July, we thought, you know, we were looking at a really, really bad and devastating situation when it comes to the state budget. You had massive cuts proposed. And, I mean, a year ago, we're looking at 4 $6 billion in the hole, right? So things have certainly changed though and and I have to say this is probably one of the easier budgets Michael in terms of you know me being around in Annapolis I mean things are just smooth sailing and it's remarkable to think that just back in July we were looking at massive cuts and here we are today and and it's relatively smooth sailing at least for this All year's right. budget
0: I guess that's a function I mean you've been you've been on the front lines here but I guess that's a function that we're in a one-of-a-kind economic environment, right? I mean, this is this is a health crisis first and foremost, and that's our primary concern is keeping people safe and healthy and trying now trying to get people vaccinated. But it does have these really profound economic effects. And when we saw the wave of Marylanders and Americans suddenly out of work, you know, making their first claim for unemployment insurance and so forth, it was, I mean, I remember seeing, you know, these these graphs that have these huge spikes, and no one's seen a number like that before. Um. So back in, you know, in March, April, May of 2020, all the indicators were, all the economists would say, if you have that kind of unemployment, good heavens, your, your government revenues are going to fall apart. You better batten down the hatches and and be ready to cut anything that is not absolutely essential in your operating budget. And Maryland was poised to do that, thinking, you know, maybe this is going to send us into a terrible, terrible recession, right?
1: Right. And I mean, look, I think it's fair to say we still don't know what the economy truly is. I mean, we know that we've had massive federal spending sort of keep, Things afloat across the the country and that money has flowed in and it's worked. We had a huge bill that was passed in December. That money is coming to Maryland. It's also coming to counties and municipalities. So there's no doubt that federal spending plays a huge role in this. And when it comes to jobs, You know, we don't know it once the federal spending dries up, how many of these jobs are real. And I think we've talked about that. Or is it just that federal money is sort of keeping people employed? So we don't know. But no doubt about it. Federal money coming in has played a big role. I also think, look, Maryland is a relatively wealthy state in terms of income. So during this pandemic, unfortunately, a lot of folks in the service industries were the ones hardest hit. But a lot of people who make relatively good money were able to continue working remotely. They pay taxes, obviously. So I think that plays a big role as well. Taxes, uh, income taxes were better than expected. So a lot of things uh, that have that have really led to this. But the budget itself, I mean, you're looking at the state is about to come into a lot of money. And, Michael, I you know I think one of the, the big things and we'll talk a few th- a few minutes about what actually matters for counties here. But one of the big questions is once this federal money comes down and we expect it to hit the state's coffers pretty soon, who gets to decide how to spend the money? That's something that I'm looking forward to, to them hammering out. What, what are your thoughts on that in terms of will the governor get to decide because the General Assembly is outside of session or will the General Assembly try to put some guardrails up there, do you think? it it seems possible it seems to
0: me that there's still time in this legislative session for the general assembly to try and put a stamp on the spending plan for the you know next year or two while as as this federal support starts to flow and we know that there's going to be a great deal of support that comes to the state government and a lot of that is meant to be transferred on to businesses that are in need or to residents who are in need and so forth. So it's not just like this is all money going into a bureaucracy for nameless, faceless, nothing. It's it's meant to be transferred to to prop up the economy, to patch us over this unusually difficult time. So I, I think we'll probably see more of the same, what we've seen for the last number of months. Um, but... for the General Assembly to show up and say, you know, here are eight things or 14 things that we think are, you know, all, all, you know, here's the green light to spend the money on these things, maybe within certain limits or within certain, you know, boundaries or whatnot. I, I don't know what that might look like specifically. We've seen at least one bill introduced along these lines that hasn't received any attention, but, uh, there's two or three weeks left in session. There's still an opportunity for, for some uh, for some attention, I think.
1: Yeah, definitely still some time there. I mean, when it comes to counties, Michael, we were mostly focused on the Budget Reconciliation Financing Act. That's sort of the bill that accompanies the budget bill to balance everything out. The good news is we got everything we asked for. There were some proposals to shift some costs onto counties. One of the biggest deals, Michael, is community colleges. And there was proposals sort of to cut them And then cut them in the out years the general assembly restored those cuts and then also for the first time ever the general assembly it seems they're signaling that they're going to fully fund their share of the cade funding formula that is sort of the the state the counties and then tuition the state has never been able to get there they've they've you know pushed the pushed it down the road multiple times but it's looking like the state is going to fully fund its share so it's a big deal for community colleges obviously we play a big role in their funding. And when the state's funding is not there, they typically come to counties to to make up the the lost funds from the state. And then, of course, they don't want to raise tuition, but that would be the other option. So I don't want that to be lost in the shuffle. That's a big deal this year. And certainly the General Assembly is signaling that they're going to do that and live up to, the, to their full share of aid.
0: This is exactly the right time to show up for these institutions that that can deliver close to home. And when we know we have an awful lot of our our neighbors and and people in our community who are underemployed or unemployed, I mean, a community college is the perfect place to go and pick up some new skills to find yourself better positioned when this economy sort of opens back up, right? So, you know, the the idea of the two-year schools that have some things that are pretty functional in nature, that you can take nursing classes and so forth, or or, work on an associate's degree um, and build your business acumen, or culinary skills. There's a whole laundry list of things that two-year schools are really good at, and to make sure that those are robust offerings ready for people who right now may find themselves with less travel time, they may be between jobs or under underemployed right now. This is the perfect time for some people to get some retraining and education and, you know, sharpen the saw, so to speak.
1: No doubt about it. So I think that the bottom line here, Michael, overall, pretty easy budget year. Lots of the focus is on federal funds. They're certainly not in crisis, as we may have thought just back in July, not in hack and slash mode. So good news there. So, Michael, the federal money, of course, is because of the pandemic. We are still dealing with the pandemic. Hopefully there is light at the end of the tunnel as more folks get vaccinated. But what bills are still alive, Michael, dealing with COVID? We, we know that's also one of the biggest issues this session. What are we seeing here uh, when it comes to the Senate?
0: It did feel like a whole wave of legislation yeah, being introduced in the first week of the session that yeah, that dealt with, well, what about the COVID effect on this or that? It just felt like there were dozens of, of, of different bills. And uh, I think they're all over the General Assembly. It's not like these are all budget issues or they're all employment issues. They're scattered. Uh, one of the things that I've been following is, will the legislature sort of Build something of a game plan for what the state's response is going to look up. Look for the, you know, look like for the the months ahead. You know, we've had, you know, let's face it, we've had frustrations over a, a variety of things, but lately the the vaccination rollout has left. Some of our county leaders frustrated about the, how the allocations have been inconsistent. We've been concerned that the fed, federal government has left us in the lurch, not knowing what our share is gonna be week to week. Um, you know, the, the, where the sites are and how residents can go about registering and pre-registering, and, and then what happens if you've registered in three places and st- other things like that. We've had so many like nuts and bolts problems um, the mm-hmm. the Senate has moved a bill that sort of creates, I, I guess, I guess a game plan is the right word for what the state's approach to to testing and tracing will continue to look like. I guess you have different opinion, differences of opinion about how important testing is going to be going forward. But I think there's still a role for that. Uh, but also vaccinations. We're, we're still, we're in the we're in the throes of an all-out effort to get everybody who wants to be vaccinated their opportunity to do so, and our our public health leaders are talking in really hopeful terms that it's going to be a matter of weeks, not months, before you know the, the big big numbers of Marylanders have been able to get their their immunization shot. So let's hope that's what happens but but it's a it's a logistical challenge it's a communications challenge and we may need to do further if we end up with variants and strains that challenge um, our our resistance capacities maybe this is an ongoing thing so the senate has has put out a bill that's some of the nuts and bolts going forward but having you know put again put their stamp on it so I think that's one of the things that is uh, alive and, and our public health professionals are engaged on that. Um, there's things at multiple levels, right? You, you've been watching some of this other stuff, too, too,
1: right? Right. So, I mean, there is still a lot of work, a lot of subcommittee work and work groups going into the numerous bills that deal with work protections and benefits when it comes to COVID and when a person should be able to say, I don't feel comfortable, I don't want to come to work, how much people should be paid that are sort of the essential workers, Mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot going into that. And that has really not been worked out yet. So a lot to come there, Michael. And and there are a couple big issues still to be ironed out there. One of them is liability. And you've been keeping an eye on that too.
0: I I think I've probably flipped on this issue. Early in session, I thought I you know, Mako came to the table and supported a couple of bills, and there were a number of stakeholders who did so saying, we're really afraid of a wave of lawsuits arising from people who get who end up getting COVID, right? And if if you say I, I got sick and now i'm I'm mad because I feel like I might have gotten exposed at work, so I want to sue my employer. Okay? Well, I mean, we're, you know, this is the county podcast. County governments are employers, and we might very well have categories of people who are in essential jobs that we couldn't just shut down. You can't just shut down the 911 call center, right? But to the extent that people need to be at the place where all that technology is, does it expose them to some risk? Maybe. And is that an unreasonable risk in the workplace? Maybe. So, like, maybes are really fertile ground for lawsuits at one point i thought there was a chance for some state legislation to say you know to, to sort of like try and tamp down the the potential nuisance lawsuits let's let's just throw something in and see if we can get 60 grand that's the kind of thing that really worries employers including counties an awful lot um i think that has been so fraught with difficulties i think it's unlikely we're going to see one of those broad bills show up uh, to, to grant some liability protection. We, we, we talked with with uh, Piggy Townsend from, from uh, the hospital side of the universe about the same kind of issues, about medical decisions made in the midst of COVID. They're worried about liability, too. I don't think we're going to see a big umbrella on that front. So let's hope our worst fears aren't realized and we don't end up with a giant wave of litigation in the fallout after, you know, this terrible pandemic. It's, it's bad enough that our, you know, our, our neighborhoods have been ravaged by, by illness and so forth. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you on the workplace issues. Those are still thorny, still getting sorted out. So lots of bills introduced, not quite as many passing.
1: Right. So a lot to work out there for sure. And that's going to be a focus as we head into the last few weeks of session. Of course, along with police reform, we talked about that still hanging out there as well. Let's talk about some of the other interesting issues kicking around, Michael. We've talked on here before about sports wagering. And look, we know that the voters in Maryland approved the idea, the general concept. It was going to be up to the General Assembly to decide how to do this. And it looks like, Michael, a bill is coming together on how to implement sports wagering in Maryland. And, of course, one of the biggest issues is, you know, the license holders, right? If, do the casinos get to do this? Can there be off-track betting? We have, you know, the Fandals and DraftKings of the world, the mobile apps, and they can geofence. But it looks like this is starting to come together, Michael, in the House and the Senate.
0: It, it does seem that way. So, I mean, this is this is something that probably it's a revenue source, but not a gigantic one. Right. It's, it's not like, you know, if we make it legal in Maryland to bet on the Orioles, then suddenly we can pay for the Kerwin plan. Right. This isn't that kind of thing. But it is it is one of these things that since the federal, you know, since the federal laws have sort of cleared a path for states to authorize this. Um, we've got an opportunity to do that, so uh, it looks like we may see the the pieces come together this year. I'm I'm reasonably optimistic that'll happen. Uh, I think mean, we've mentioned that you know trying to figure out what's going to be the year and when might it come together, also with an eye toward federal law has been adult use cannabis. Um, we've mentioned it a couple times just because yeah it's another high profile topic. We've seen a number of other states either. Pass this as a ballot question, or just do it through their state legislature. At least one or two states have done that, and I think I think we sat down and did it an around the horn back in January or or early February, and sort of shrugged our shoulders and said, "Don't know whether this will be the year." I, I think I think if this were the year, there would be more motion by now. So, I'm, I'm I, I think we can probably call this one as. Adult-use cannabis, not this session, it appears, Um, but the gears may still be turning on this issue, maybe pointing toward the 2022 session, and lo and behold, that would be a state election year. So, potential for that to still be the legislature passes something but frames it as as either a constitutional amendment or otherwise something that would end up on the November 22 ballot. So I think that's a decent prediction for what's going to happen on this issue. The debate's not over. It's just not ripe yet this year, it looks.
1: No doubt about it. It's not if, but when. And if you're interested, I, I would ask people to go ahead and Google what's going on in New York. They've come to sort of an agreement, but there are a lot of factors that have to go into this. And And I agree with you. This looks like it's going to be a ballot issue, Michael. And of course, another interesting issue that is kicking around the school funding bill, Kerwin, Michael, this is sort of the, right, this is sort of the fix the bill. I have to tell you, I'm really glad that I'm off the Kerwin beat. I mean, of course, I miss it, but... I wasn't sad to to hand over the reins, but look, we know that we passed the big blueprint bill to implement the Kerwin Commission's recommendations. We've talked about that ad nauseum on this podcast over the past few years, but because of the pandemic, Michael, there were some issues in terms of some technical fixes that had to be made. That bill is still kicking around, Michael. What's the latest with that?
0: I think it's coming together. This one looks like it's on a fast track to pass. So, when when you when you reference like there's some because of the pandemic, there's there's a couple things that have necessitated a sort of cleanup bill. Um number one, just the timing of last year's Kerwin bill becoming law. because the governor vetoed the bill back in the spring, and then the general Assembly didn't meet until January, that means that the governor introduced the fy twenty two budget, which would have been, the first year of the Kerwin plan, he introduced the budget before the Kerwin bill became law. So you end up in this really tricky situation, right? You know, I, I know we've talked on this podcast about how Maryland has this peculiar budget process where the current year's spending, really the governor holds all the cards. And back in last year's session, they could have mandated that for this year's budget, the governor do X, Y, and Z. But because the bill had not passed, he introduces a budget under the laws as they were at the time, and he they can't pass a new bill to say, now go back in time and fix that. But So what we've seen is, okay, there's an appetite to, all right, we're going to push back some of the components of this multi-year plan, kind of skip the FY22 budget, which is going to work out okay, and then change a few of the expectations. But meanwhile, we also had our annual count of students in September 2020. And in a pandemic year with so many students remote, when we counted heads and kids in seats, we ended up in some jurisdictions, they're down 4%, down 6%, down 10% in their enrollment count. So, if you figure that a lot of those kids are temporarily being homeschooled or temporarily in private schools that have been able to go face to face or something like that, then you have to figure those kids are probably gonna come back to the public schools, at least most of them will. So, wow, you'd have a real aberration in all the various formulas that are based on enrollment counts. So, you know, wring your hands over that for a while and if you think through all the nuts and bolts, that's complicated. So that's another thing to tidy up, basically, there's a bill moving through the legislature to clean up those loose ends, to basically say, all right, all these references to FY22, we'll make these things start in FY23, we'll change the phase-in periods, we'll adjust some timetables, we'll tidy up some technical references, and that enrollment count in September 2020, for all intents and purposes, we're going to just ignore that enrollment count and basically reference the year before and, you know, sort of tidy up loose ends around that so you don't end up with all your formulas driven nuts by one weird year of, of kid counts. So that's a long-winded way of saying it's a technical cleanup bill that looks to be on its way towards passing. It's on the floor of the Senate. It's already passed the House. Um, I don't think this will turn into a, a conference committee back and forth. It's much more likely that the House will just accept the changes that the Senate is putting on the bill now, and this will be a done deal.
1: No doubt. I agree with you there. And then, you know, let's, let's leave on a, on a weird slash light note, Michael. I mean, (laughs) we, we, we see local bills every year. Right. And, and, Look, for people that are just tuning in right now, they may be asking, why are all these county bills all over the place? I mean, particularly in this session, I feel like, Michael, there's been so much discussion about local courtesy and all these local bills and how the General Assembly should treat them and handle them. I mean... What is I mean, look, I, I just don't think they've talked about it to this extent before, but it's normal to have a lot of local bills, which are a county decides they'd like to do something. They go to their delegation. A bill gets introduced. And a lot of the times you see this with liquor bills. Right. And that's its own animal. Not but yeah. talk a little bit about, you know, the history here and and what is, you know, you know, local courtesy and, and how does that all play? in? particularly this <laughs> session a lot, it seems like
0: this is probably its own podcast to bring in a learned guest or two and and talk about how all this evolved. But I mean, in the practical sense, um, county governments are in some ways autonomous units, and we get to make our own decisions, we pass our own budgets and and a variety of things along those lines. But uh, depending on the structure of your county government, Uh, There are some issues that your county still needs to come to the state legislature and have the state change the laws so you can do something or so you can, you know, launch a new program or change a tax rate or whatever. And some of these things are unbelievably tiny, right? I mean, we see these, we see a bill introduced in the whole state legislature to change the state's attorney's salary in one random county from 90 to $94,000 because some local commission said that's what we should do, right? And they can't just do it locally, even though it's all being paid for out of the county budget. They have to trot up to Annapolis, file some blue pieces of paper, have it introduced as a bill, and and debated and considered by the entire General Assembly. So that's where this starts, is we have some counties who don't even enjoy this concept of home rule, and they need the General Assembly to authorize tons of stuff, but even our biggest, most sophisticated, um, the charter counties, even the charter counties sometimes still need authority from the state to do something new or something that hasn't been explicitly authorized. So in every year when there are whatever, 2,500, 3,000, 3,500 bills, there are hundreds and hundreds of local bills. And imagine if you're, you know, imagine you're the, the senator from Garrett and Allegheny County and you're you're a, you know, a member of the Senate and the day's calendar includes, here's a bill from Carroll County, here's a bill from Cecil County, here's the whole slate of different bills from Dorchester County. And it's just one after another, all these different local bills. Do you really want to roll up your sleeves and get into the debate about what the state's attorney's salary ought to be in Cecil County? That bill you got to vote on. That bill. Do you really want to get into all that stuff? Do you want to read the report of every county commit? You know, all these different study groups and stuff.
1: Probably not, right? Just so. Right. So I this mean, year, over- <laughs> though, uh, more so than normal, I'd have to say.
0: Well, in general, what's evolved over time is that the easiest way to handle these local issues is, listen, when I represent Garrett County out here, when my Garrett County bill shows up, I'm going to explain to you all why you should vote for it. And I'll ask you to sort of, I know what's going on on the ground in Garrett County, so I'll be the one who can sort of be the expert on the Garrett County bill. And if you represent Cecil... You can explain to me the Cecil County bill. And you know what? I'm going to defer to what you tell me makes sense for Cecil, and I'll ask you to defer to me on what makes sense for Garrett. So that sort of informal handshake has over the years turned into a pretty formal and pretty well-respected concept of local courtesy that if the delegation for the county affected by a local bill supports the bill, that's good enough for me. And you will return the favor when I have my local bill that's over in your committee. You don't want to get into a big debate about a local county, a you know, single county bill. You just sort of say, hey, if if the delegates who represent there, if they support this bill, that's good enough for me. I support the bill. But what if like single county effect isn't quite as clear as, you know, what's the salary of one employee or we'll add one more license or something along those lines. Right. That's when this gets tricky.
1: Right. And we've seen a number of those issues this year, but, you know, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. It could be a whole episode and we could have people on here that can talk about the history and really the local courtesy was designed to move things along because like you just said, The idea would be that, you know, you're representing that jurisdiction, you know what's going on, and and I'll have a bill and you're going to do the same for me. The idea is to to move it along, but there are some tricky issues that you can get into with, quote-unquote, a local bill and how how that happens. But, I mean, you know, where do you draw the line? And I guess that's sort of an evolving conversation, and I think this year particularly – We've seen a lot of those questions pop up and what counts as a local bill? What is local courtesy? What should you do? What should you not do? So a lot of that stuff, I just feel like they've they've talked about it more this year than I've ever heard before. And it's just pretty fascinating as, you know, the folks that represent counties and you're sort of listening. And all of a sudden you hear about a local bill and there's people standing up and you're like, whoa, 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 this is complicated, right? We're not used to this. So interesting debate for sure this year, more than more so than normal, I'd say.
0: I think in an ordinary year, there are literally scores of single county bills that pass without as much as a whimper. And they're all, you know, just like we're going to add two more Class B wine and beer licenses in Carroll County and that sort of stuff. And it all just sort of trudges along and everybody defers to local courtesy. I think this year we've heard more stand up on the floor, ask a question about the the ramifications of this local bill, and does this affect, what if What if I'm driving through your county, will this still affect me on the roads there? And like, if the answer is yes, then suddenly it's kind of a political free-for-all. Is this really a local bill if it can affect me as I visit? And so, you know. anyway, I, I think there's been more conversation about the substance of these local courtesy issues that call into question, is this a system that can continue you know, in an immaculate fashion, or are we going to be scratching at this itch for forever?
1: Yep. Yeah, so certainly more to come there is something I think we'd like to cover after session is done. But bottom line, Michael, as we head into the final weeks of session, a lot of stuff is done, and a lot of bills have passed. The budget is going to be easy. A couple high-profile issues still hanging out there. Any closing thoughts before we wrap it up for today?
0: No, I think just yeah uh, you know, we we had our legislative committee for Mako. Um, we did another virtual meeting. Sadly, we're we're not yet in a state to be able to meet face to face and do that in a spaced and safe way. But but still got everybody plugged in to give them an update a, a little bit along the lines of what we're doing here. I'm just I'm happy that we got so much participation and. And guidance from our elected officials through this session. Um, this is a weird year in a lot of ways, and you know, we've we've talked about this in in a, in a variety of ways on the podcast. But I, I will say, um, doing things remotely has actually been a boon for participation in a lot of ways. And this year, we probably had an extra. I don't know what would you say, maybe like an extra 10 or 15 elected officials from our counties who have been able to, like, I can get on a Zoom meeting. Like, I can't take a whole mm-hmm. Wednesday off and drive two hours each way to get to Annapolis to do, uh, you know, a couple hours worth of meetings. But just a just be on the Zoom thing and be part of the conversation, oh, I can do that. And we've been the better for it, I think, having having a little broader participation. And, you know, when we have guests a- more questions coming from other members i think that's been a plus um in a tough year you look for uh, you look for silver lining so i find one there participation good thing
1: definitely and i think the general assembly would say the same about folks who are able To testify remotely, it's so easy to not have to take a full day off and come down to Annapolis and maybe wait out a few hours outside of a committee. You can just zoom in, and when your name is called, you get to testify. So I think across the board, it'll be interesting to see how that is handled moving forward. But you mentioned county elected officials and the input that they provide being so important. I also want to say the county professional staff has been essential for all of us, right? We rely on them. They're the experts back at home, whether it be in budget or environment, permitting, whatever the case may be. They have been essential this year, particularly. So oh, sure. shout out to them as well, right? Big, big no deal. Doubt. To the elected officials and the, and the professional staff.
0: Oh man, I, I I don't know what I would have done <laughs> with without, especially you know, this year, our health officers have been up to their eyeballs in, I mean, they're trying to deal with the pandemic, but then also I keep shipping out all these different bills talking about well, what about this and what about that and they've been they've been enormously helpful in in guiding us along in in multiple ways. So anyway, um yeah, it's a great team we get to be part of.
1: Absolutely, and that's a good way to to end this episode of the podcast as always. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. Michael will be back with more updates as the General Assembly rounds out its session. But for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.